Welcome to the 92nd episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, we will talk about Major League Baseball playoff action, specifically the end of the World Series, and talk about this past week's NBA action. So let's jump right in with a look at Major League Baseball playoff action, specifically the World Series, where the Atlanta Braves beat the Houston Astros to capture the 2021 World Series championship in six games. In Game 3, well, starting off with the action that we didn't cover on the last podcast uh, that we talked about the MLB, uh, in Game 3, Atlanta won 2 to nothing. Uh, that game was pretty much all Ian Anderson and the bullpen for the Braves winning that game. Uh, in Game 4, Atlanta won 3-2. to two. They were down 2-1. Two to, two to one. And then uh, Dansby Swanson and Jorge Soler out of pinch hitting uh, went back-to-back, I believe, in the ninth or not in the ninth in the 8th, or it was either the 7th or the 8th inning, uh, to take the lead for Atlanta. Uh, and really a pivotal game. It was one of those things where you thought, um, you know, Atlanta, you know, known for choking and everything, but uh, what happens when they're behind? You never know. And uh, they end up making the comeback here. Uh, in Game 5, it looked like they were back to their old choking ways as they had an opportunity to clinch the series. Hit a first-inning Grand Slam up 4 to nothing in the bottom of the first and in the second, and they somehow find a way to lose this game uh, with the opportunity to clinch the series, the World Series, at home. Uh, they lose this game 9-5. to uh, Something to note in this game, Martin Maldonado probably did the most you could ever do while only hitting one single uh, for your hits in an entire game. He took a bases-loaded walk to drive in a run. He had a sack fly uh, when it was 4-1. to one. He had a sack fly before the pitcher spot came up. And obviously, AL pitchers not used to hitting, so that was really, really important in this game especially. Uh, and he had a sacrifice fly when it was 4-1. to one. It made it 4-2 to two the next inning. The Astros were able to tie it. And then he came up when they were down 5-4 to four after a Freddie Freeman solo home run. He drew a bases-loaded walk, which led to uh, a two-run single by Marwin Gonzalez. Again, the nine-hitter, this time a pinch hitter. Uh, which got Houston the 7-5 lead, and then he tacked on at the end of the game with an RBI single at the very end, but just very smart at bats, too. He he changed his entire hitting approach. He he was he normally stands pretty far back. Uh, he went super, 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 super close uh, in the batter's box and made it really hard for, I believe it was A.J. Minter pitching at the time, to actually throw a strike against him, and he couldn't do it. He, it, was three to, it was a 3-1 count, and he drew a walk while pretending to bunt. Uh, and he showed bunt, and it just threw Minter off, and he just couldn't deal with it. Uh, it. It's a very, very smart play. As funny as it sounds, a guy bunting on 3-1 also, not even just any guy, probably one of the slower players in the league, up there with an Albert Pujols uh, for the slowest player in the league. He's a, he's an old veteran catcher. Uh, and look, he's not going to bunt on 3-1 with two outs, and yet somehow just the sheer thought of there's no way he's going to bunt. He's not going to bunt, but he's showing bunt. That thought going into a pitcher's mind in the middle of their windup just always finds a way to disrupt the pitcher, and in this case it did, forced a very bad, a very badly missed fastball that resulted in uh, the game-leading walk, or the game-tying walk for the Astros, and eventually a two-run single that put them up 7-5 and pretty much led to the lead, led them to that lead for the whole game. Uh, and then in Game 6, Atlanta... Going into Houston up 3-2, to two, just had to win one game on the road uh, like they did in the first time they were there for two games uh, in Houston. Uh, Max Freed was outstanding in this game, pitched six scoreless innings with no walks given up. Uh, and then Jorge Soler hit a three-run home run out of the park. Uh, and, I mean, that was that was all they needed in the game. I mean, they won 7 to nothing, but that, that home run kind of, it felt like, 
barring another collapse like they had the last game, that was going to seal them the series. And you just feel like once you've choked one three-run lead off of a big home run, you're not likely going to do it again the very next game to the same team. Uh, And it almost felt like the Braves had kind of learned their lesson. I mean, obviously, it's not like they were trying to lose the game or anything, but they kind of ratcheted it up. They made sure that their intensity was still there, uh, and they won that game because of that. Um, But in in the whole series, I'd just like to say this. We know the bullpen was huge, uh, but I think Ian Anderson was really the unsung hero. Uh, The Braves won all of his starts this postseason. He went 2-0 by decisions, 4-0 overall, with just three earned runs given up in 17 total innings pitched. Uh, Other than a Corey Seager two-run home run in the first inning of Game 2 of the NLCS, he went 16 innings with one run given up. Uh, It started with him pitching in a 1-1 series and an NLDS, and remember that series is a best of five, so 1-1 is a very, very, very important game. It already is in a Game 7, but... In a fi- in a best of five game in, in a best of five series, it's ridiculously important. Uh, the Braves won the game 3-0 because of his scoreless five five scoreless innings that he pitched. Also, the bullpen contributing to that too. Um, then, with the Braves up one to nothing in Atlanta, he gave them just three innings, but only gave up that first inning home run I talked about uh, to the Dodgers in Game Two of the NLCS. And the offense had his back, uh, winning that game five to four off of Jock Peterson's home run off of Max Scherzer to tie the game and then some more runs later in the game. In the series clinching Game 6 of the NLCS, Anderson pitched four innings, giving up only one run, leading the Braves to a 4-2 win to propel them into the World Series. And then lastly, he pitched five scoreless innings in Game 3 in the 1-1 series tie again against Houston. Atlanta won that game 2 to nothing, as we know, behind that strong performance. That was a swing game in the series for real. Uh, if, if Houston got any offense in that game, they would have won the game. Uh, but Ian Anderson and also the bullpen, but we, everybody's been talking about the bullpen, so I'm trying to give credit where credit is due here. Uh, Ian Anderson really, that, that was the most important thing, was that he came out, pitched a good five innings, made it so that even if Houston got to the bullpen, as long as it was to a minimal degree, uh, Atlanta would still win the game, and that's what happened. And I think really teams all throughout the postseason thought that once they had beaten Freed or they had beaten Morton, that Anderson was kind of the weak link, weak link of the staff, and he could be beaten. Um, but after Alex Anthopoulos moves at the deadline, winning all of his starts was the final piece Atlanta needed for their run. And I think you look back to the Dodgers series, how they got into the World Series. Uh, the Dodgers beat Freed once. Uh, they didn't beat Anderson. They could not beat Anderson. They they split between the Freed games and the Morton games. They were, I believe, 2-2. Two and two. They won both the two games off of Freed and Morton, or maybe off of one bullpen game, maybe. Um, but did not win a game with Anderson pitching in it. And then in this World Series, Charlie Morton got injured in Game 1. And even though Atlanta won Game 1, everybody talked about how the pitching advantage late in the series would go in Houston's favor because Atlanta only had Ian Anderson and Max Freed left. But Ian Anderson in Game 3 was all they needed. Uh, he just They just needed him to take that one start after Freed won Game 2 for them. And then a bullpen game in Game 4 and Game 5. Uh, and that was enough to just get Freed on the mound one more time and win and win it all for them. And Ian Anderson would have pitched that game seven probably, uh, so we could never know what would have happened there. But that really could have been where he could have turned from the unsung hero to maybe even a World Series MVP. Uh, speaking of the World Series MVP, Jorge Soler in the series was insane. And by the way, Alex Anthopoulos' moves, that's how they got Jorge Soler. Yeah, I mean, just a storybook season for Atlanta. I'm sure people heard the stats about... You know, 60%, 60% of the way into the season, they were below 500. 
um, and how you know it doesn't happen very often. Actually, it's the second time in three years where you've had a team that was in last place. The Nationals did the same thing. They turned the season around a little earlier. It was, I think, it was like fifty games or something that their record yeah. was super bad. I think they were two, nineteen and thirty-one or but something. Two, two, two out of the last three seasons, you had a team that was you know pretty much struggling that uh, turned it around and, and made a rush at the end of the season. The Braves, people, a lot of people talk about how the Braves, you know, uh, took down the vaunted Dodgers and their record. The fact of the matter is, since those trade deadline moves that you referenced, I believe the Braves had one of the best records in baseball. I think they the were best. If I believe they were third behind the Dodgers and the Giants, Giants only, yeah. but so, not by. But by the way, not by much. When the Dodgers and Giants were fighting super hard for that division crown, and it looked like not, no team could beat either of them. So I am going to ask people to go into the archives of the podcast and. Uh, Take a listen. Uh, we were able to redo our predictions. Uh, this was before the injuries. I think we did re- predictions at the All-Star break, and I said the Braves were going to win the division. And um, I did pick the Braves to beat Houston in this series. So um, really a nice story, a gutty effort. I always love those stories with guys who have been on a team forever finally getting their World Series. So Freddie Freeman, class act, solid baseball player, what people would call a baseball player's baseball player, was there for the rough years. Um, he got to win a World Series. Um, I, just a feel-good story, and um, you know, putting aside any thoughts you might have about the tomahawk chop and everything, I do feel good for Atlanta fans. They've suffered. We make fun of them for their team's choking. Really, do feel good for the city of Atlanta, for the Braves organization, for Brent Snicker. I mean, the, for the Snicker, their, their manager, lifelong baseball guy, right? Toiling. Not the, lifelong baseball guy. Lifelong Braves, Braves guy. guy. Yeah. Toiling in the shadows of Bobby Cox and none of his shadows, but in the minor league system. I just and all... and he had to, to to clarify it. He had forty three years in the Braves organization, including this year. And uh, I think four of them were as the major of the minor league, of the major league team. I think eighteen of them were in the minors as a coach. He just loves... Four of them was as were as a player. He played with Hank Aaron, uh, and that's I mean. He'd been there for a really, really, really uh, long time. Feel good for them. I think Ron Washington's also on their staff, yeah. and he was a, he was kind of disgraced. Uh, left left the Rangers was uh, was what two strikes away or one strike away from from winning the World Series as their manager, and then had some off field issues and got himself cleaned up, and he's back. Yeah, there's just a lot of things to feel good about this. Uh, World Series win for the Braves. So congratulations. Well, they did have a famous Atlanta choke because they were up four to nothing in the first inning. But the only difference is, unlike a football game where the Falcons choked their twenty-eight to three lead in baseball, you have more than one opportunity. Uh, last year, they couldn't do that against the Dodgers. They couldn't get over the fact that they had an opportunity to clinch and blew that clinching opportunity in a game five. This year, they had an opportunity to clinch in game five, but this time, uh, they did not blow their opportunity. Both they in cap- the NLCS and the World Series. Yeah, they capitalized on it, and uh, that was, I mean, that's the reason why the Braves won it. But, I mean, again, you talk about trades. You know, Alex Anthopoulos' trades this year had such a huge impact, and it was, and what they did was great with all these guys, Jock Peterson, uh, Eddie Rosario. None of these guys should be on the Braves at all. Uh, Jorge Soler. But the one thing that you also have to look at is some other, te- some other teams that made pretty stupid trades in the past, such as Arizona trading Dansby Swanson, six months after drafting him number one overall to the Braves for a reliever who at some point had a three ERA as a starter and then en- ended up having a six ERA on the Diamondbacks uh, in a year where the Dodgers ran away with the division. The, the Diamondbacks lost 90 or so games. Uh, and, I mean, you look back at it, you would never think that it would impact it that much, but Dansby Swanson, a hometown kid, maybe, I don't know if he was even struggling in the minor leagues at the time. I mean, he only had six months for that to happen. I think it just kind of happened that he got traded. Bad trade. Um, and now you're seeing the effects of it just long-term, building up guys, keeping Freddie Freeman there, 
And in the end, they didn't even need Ronald the, the extension that they got Ronald Acuna for, which was honestly a bargain if you look at how much he's making. He's not making <laughs> what an MVP candidate is supposed to make, but still. Uh, even though it didn't end up doing anything for them, even though keeping Marcelo Ozuna didn't end up helping them this year, what it did was it built a team that they thought was built to win. And then as soon as those guys went down, they didn't back down. Alex Anthopoulos said, I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to take losing. This is a winning team. And he really did fill out a winning roster. And that winning roster that he built, they won it all. They did the ultimate task of winning, winning the World Series. Uh, so again, just a crazy run by the Braves. Really reminiscent to me uh, of the 2019 Nationals run, except for instead of being... Uh, just taken by three great starting pitchers. This team was taken to the World Series by their bullpen. It was pretty much the, the exact opposite of the Nationals run. Uh, and really league-wide, that, that 2019 postseason was dominated by starting pitching, and this, this postseason was the exact opposite. I think it's the lowest percentage all-time that starting pitchers have pitched in terms of innings. But again, Atlanta had the formula. Uh, their bullpen was really not supposed to be a strength of theirs the whole year, the year before. Uh, it really hasn't been for a while. They've really been kind of an all-offense, all-lineup kind of a team for a very long time. Uh, but this year, the bullpen, they stepped up at the right time. Uh, and boy, did they need it, and they delivered. Yeah, um, and, every, and funny, the Dodgers thought that was the weakness of the Braves, and it turned out to be a strength in the postseason. Both in the Every team thought that they that they could wear out the Braves starters and get to the bullpen. Turned and out getting nobody, to the bullpen was a big problem. Keep every, the starters in. And nobody got to the bullpen, and that was also part of what Snicker did because, as I said, when Corey Se- when he gave up the two-run home run to Corey Seager, when Ian Anderson did, he took him out within three innings, yeah. and that's what he did didn't all postseason. Wait, wait for him to get he knew that teams, originally teams thought getting to the bullpen was the strategy, but as soon as he realized that his starters were actually a little bit weaker than the bullpen, he went to his bullpen almost as early as possible. He was looking for any excuse to get his bullpen in the game. The only way he wouldn't have his bullpen in the game after the third or fourth inning is if his starter was not giving up hits at all. Uh, So, I mean, he would put them in man on first, and all of a sudden, you know what, Max Reed, you're at 65 pitches, and we'll get you back a day early or late in the series. Let's go to the bullpen. Yeah, the, uh, the one thing that does stand out, particularly with the scores these last four games, is uh, how Houston's bats didn't come alive. You thought it might happen like they did in the Red Sox series, but in this series, um, their bats didn't come alive. They <laughs> Three of the last four games, two of the last four games, they got shut out. The other game, they scored two runs, and then the aforementioned game where they erupted for nine, but their bats were really just put to sleep by the Atlanta pitching or... Uh, maybe part of it was the absence of a designated hitter for three of those games. And uh, I think it really started with with their series against the Red Sox where they had to expend so much energy on offense. And maybe the Red Sox wore off on them a little bit with their whole uh, (laughs) two games of offense and then three games of no offense whatsoever. Um, But, I mean, it really seems like they did. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, Houston just did not really get much going. And, I mean, there's really no explanation. There's no one person you can put it on. I think... Everybody got their hits. It's just that not a single inning were the Astros able to string it together. Uh, not never. Correa had two hits, I believe, in Game Six. Altuve had two hits in Game Six, I think, too. But Jordan Alvarez had one also. But it, it doesn't matter when you don't stack them together. And Jordan's comes in the one inning where Altuve, where nor, neither Altuve nor Carlos, Carlos Correa hit get a hit. His hit is meaningless then. Uh, he's not knocking anybody in, and the, and the same thing happened just throughout the lineup the whole time, um, other than that game five. But I mean, there, I mean, Houston really did just. They, I think their bats just went quiet. I, I, I'd like to give a lot of credit to Atlanta's bullpen, 
but I know that Houston's lineup did not play as well as they could because they have pitched, they have played against any any amount of good pitchers, and it, it doesn't matter. They've hit in the past off of pretty much anybody at will. So I, I just know that this was not their best stuff, but not a lack of effort or anything. And the, and the Braves' bullpen was still definitely a part of it. They definitely limited it. But this team should never get shut out. That's that shouldn't happen, especially not in a game where they're going. We're in an elimination game. Well, it's going to be an interesting off season. Um, in a lot of ways, these teams have some big name free agents. If the season happens well, next year, I was I was going to get there. These teams have some big names that are free agents. We'll see. Do they decide to stick around? Um, Jock we'll, Peterson we'll, already uh, declined his club options. So that's one thing. Or Freddie the mutual Freedom's option. A free agent. Yeah. One thing we do know is Dusty Baker signed a one-year contract for the Astros. We'll see what happens with Correa. Correa's going to the Yankees. Don't worry. Well, we'll see about that. And then it impacts the Dodgers, too. And then, as you said, very interesting offseason because a lot of big-name free agents, but nobody's sure if there's going to be a collective bargaining agreement. And how does that impact teams' uh, pursuit of free agents? It's going to be a very, very interesting offseason. Well, the current report, the the word on the street I'll say is uh is that as soon as the clock turns from 11:59 and midnight on the day where the CBA is over, there's going to be a lockout by the owners. So, uh don't expect frankly, don't expect any baseball next year the same way that we thought about it during COVID where in the end you only ended up with a 60 game season. That very Maybe well may be the exact same situation. Uh, if if there's any at all, I would not be surprised if there are not any games this year whatsoever. I would not be surprised next well, year. You you said it when we were talking casually yesterday. It's amazing how baseball manages to screw up every single time the contract is up. They just can't get it done, and it really hurts the sport. And a sport that you've also pointed out really is losing a young fan base. This is no way to uh, try to attract and maintain an audience, especially in these day and age. This day and age with all the choices is to have your, your season completely disrupted. Um, I hope it doesn't happen as a baseball fan, but I think you're right. It's likely to happen. So with the end of the baseball season, moving to the offseason, the hot stove league, as it's called, we now have the NBA season in full swing. Um, we talked a little bit about the NBA first week and a half of action last time. Uh, we will continue our to-be-weekly installment of the look back uh, at the last week of the NBA. So Patrick, let's start with the most surprising wins of this past week. Well, I'll start. I'll I'll go with three. Uh, the Cavaliers beating the Blazers. The Cavs are actually five and four on the year, and the Blazers are three and five. And I'll talk more about that stuff later. Um, but they win that game, one hundred seven to one hundred four. It's really just you don't expect teams like the Cavs, even if they're playing well, have a good record, to beat teams like the Blazers, especially when the Blazers are starving for a win. You think. That's the kind of team that they go out and beat. They think, okay, we have an opportunity. We're playing the Cavs. Let's go get this win here. Uh, but didn't happen this time. Uh, and then the next one, I'm going with the Celtics beating the Heat, ninety-five to seventy-eight. The Heat were six and one on the year, uh, and the Celtics three and five heading into that game. And the Celtics hold the Heat to just seventy-eight points. It's, I mean, that that's nothing. That <laughs> in the modern day NBA, with the pace that these teams are playing at. 78 is almost unfathomable. That, that might be one of the lower totals the entire season, and it might stand for the whole year. Uh, it's definitely one of the lowest to start the year. might even be the lowest so far. I don't, I don't exactly know, but it's definitely possible. Um, and then the Thunder, who are 2-6, beat the Lakers 107-104. Interesting note, the Thunder have only beaten the Lakers this entire season. They're, they are 0-6 against teams not named the L.A. Lakers. They are 2-0 against teams named the L.A. Lakers. Uh, pretty interesting stuff there. 
uh, although that loss was without LeBron. They also blew a 19-point lead in that game, and the first time they played the Thunder, they blew a 26-point lead. Uh, it's almost like it's almost like they're seeing the Thunder as a team they could beat up on, and as soon as they get the lead, they're just taking their foot off the gas. I feel like that's what's going on here. Uh, so I, I can't. I'm not going to really prescribe. I, I can't really say exactly what's going on. It's not like I'm in the Lakers locker room or anything, but. It, 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 I feel like it just has to be something having to do with that. But uh, some crazy wins this week. All right, what about the best teams with a losing record in the NBA? I will start with the team that I mentioned a little bit ago. I'll say the Celtics at 4-5. and five. I think that went over the heat, although it was surprising to me. Uh, it was only surprising to a degree because I really do believe that the Celtics have what it takes to be a really great team. It's just about whether they can do this consistently. Not not necessarily hold teams to less than 80, because that's not going to happen more than two or three times in a season, if at all, uh, for any team. But just play well on the defensive end enough so that they can have an off night offensively and beat really any team. I mean, it helps a lot when it's the Heat and it's a really good team, but last year they could not even beat the bad teams in the league if they had an off night uh, offensively, and that's something that you'd like to see from winning teams. So I'll give the Celtics this one. I think they just had a little bit of an early season funk. They had that crazy game against the Knicks too. They could just as easily be five and four as they are four and five. Uh, so this is a good team still, even though they're four and five on the year. Uh, the next one, the Trailblazers. I mean, they have had some losses in close games against teams that they should be beating. So I really don't think that this is a long-term issue. I think this is something that they'll figure out eventually. But it's still surprising while it's lasting that they haven't managed to win these close games when this is a team that we know has Damian Lillard. We we think he's the best closer possibly. Uh, some people would even go so far as to say of all time other than Michael Jordan. But, I mean, we all know Damian Lillard is definitely one of the most clutch players in the NBA right now and definitely of all time too. Just a bunch of crazy shots, a bunch of game winners, and sometimes this season he just hasn't been able uh, to do what he normally does, and I, I think he will be able to do it by the end of the season. Uh, I think it'll come sooner than people think it may come, but I, I don't I don't really know what the Blazers' problem is right now, but they're just not playing very well. Uh, the Clippers are 3-4. and four. They're another West Conference team that is not doing the greatest and is a playoff team from last year, obviously uh, Western Conference finalists from last year, but haven't been able to put it together. Uh, Paul George has been playing out of his mind the whole year, but even that hasn't been enough uh, for them to have a good record. And I mean, they've beaten up, they, they beat the Thunder. They, they found a way to do it, unlike the Lakers. Um, but it's still, they, they can still play a lot better. I think we know that the Clippers have a really high level that they can play at, and they're just not playing at it right now. Uh, the last team, the Atlanta Hawks, another, they're an Eastern Conference finalist from last year. They are four and five on the year. Uh, and I mean, look, they're a good team. I think this is kind of the same story as Celtics, same record and everything. This is a good team. They had a great year last year. They're only getting better because they're a young team. Um, but they just have a few things that they can iron out a little bit and win some close games here and there, and all of a sudden they'll be in a good they'll be in a good place heading into the rest of the year. All right, what about the flip side of that? Well, who are the worst teams that have a winning record? I think it's pretty obvious. It's the Wizards and the Cavs. Uh, there are other teams. I was even going to throw in the Grizzlies, but the Grizzlies don't deserve to be put in a category with the Wizards and the Cavs of worst teams with a winning record. Uh, the Grizzlies are definitely not as good as a team like the Heat, the Jazz. Uh, the the Warriors, for that example, but they're not quite in this category that I felt like mentioning them, so I'll, I'll talk about them, but I won't throw them in that category officially. 
But the Wizards are five and three, and it makes no sense. And the Cavs are five and four, and it also makes no sense. Couldn't give you an explanation of why. It's not an easy schedule. They've played a pretty medium schedule so far. But the Cavs also, on average, are being outscored by their opponents by 0.7 points per game, and yet they're five and four. Uh, the Wizards are outscoring their opponents at least. Uh, by an average of 1.1 points per game. But if you look at the rest of the Eastern Conference, some of the other teams at the top are outscoring the teams they play by about five, five and a half, that kind of a point differential. Uh, even the Bucks who have a losing record, I still think are positive in points by like two or three, something like that. Uh, same with the Knicks. So you can tell that these teams are going to go down eventually. It's only because we're nine games in the season that it's such a short sample size that that record will probably come back down to earth eventually. Um, but for now... <laughs> These two teams are definitely still the worst teams with a winning record. Okay, let's talk about some underachieving teams. I will start with the Lakers, who are 5-4 and four with two losses to OKC. Uh, that's really important because if you look at their non-OKC record, they're 5-2. and two. But the interesting thing is that would be something that you use for a good team playing against a good team, such as... I don't know, maybe the Lakers playing the yeah, Jazz. They have a tough schedule. Yeah, they have a tough schedule. They're five and four. They're doing fine. Because they're five and two against teams not that are not the Utah Jazz. This is the opposite of that. They've played an easy schedule and they're only five and four when they're supposed to be a very, very good team. And their losses are not to the only good teams they've played. They have beaten some of the good teams. They've lost to most of the good teams. They've beaten some of the bad teams and then lost a bunch to the Thunder. Uh that is not a good formula. And the Lakers, in terms of long-term, if you look at the end of the season and they end two or three games back uh, of, of a really high playoff spot or of home field or, so, or of home court, something like that, you should look at the fact that they lost two games to the Thunder and say, and point at that and say, that's probably a game that you should have had. This is another game you should have had. A 26-point lead, 19-point lead. However, a, a big part of that is LeBron missing a lot of games. But again, they are underachieving because... Russ and AD should be enough to hold down wins against the Thunder for sure, and definitely even against some other better teams. But I, I just don't think that the Lakers are playing up to their potential right now. And when you want to talk about underachieving, LeBron or not, five and four is not is not good for this Lakers team when they've considering the schedule they have played so far uh, in a very bad way. Uh, not a good schedule, but overall only an average record for a team that's supposed to be contending for a title. That's not a good formula. Uh, anybody else you want to put in that category? Yeah, I'll go with the Bucks. I mean, I'm hesitant to put them in there because they have even worse injury issues than the Lakers. Their team is basically just Giannis and everybody they signed to compete for minutes uh, on the bench right now. Uh, but I, I think, I mean, Drew Holiday's played two games on the year. I think he's playing tonight, but he, he's played two games on the year. Uh, you have Brooke Lopez, who I don't think has played a single game this year. You have Chris Middleton, who's out with COVID. Uh <laughs> This is not the championship-winning roster. It's basically Giannis and Bobby Portis. And then, honestly, people who weren't even on the roster, George Hill barely played any minutes, but at least he was on the team last year. Uh, Jordan Wara, who played like three games all of last year, is averaging something like 28 minutes, uh, which just goes to show you this isn't the same roster. Dante DiVincenzo is still out from his long-term injury. So this isn't the full Bucks roster, so I really don't want to put them on here. But at the same time, I feel like they could still be doing better than 4-4 four and four on the year so far. Uh, and Giannis is, after all, an MVP, and he's had less surrounding him in the past. He's had only pretty... He's he's had seasons where he had only Chris Middleton with him in the past. He still led them to the playoffs. This team has a better infrastructure around that, uh, and they're just, you know, they're not playing so well yet, but Giannis is playing like Giannis plays, and eventually 
He'll get some teammates back. I said Drew Holiday's coming back. Dante DiVincenzo will come back eventually. Probably the same with Brooke Lopez pretty soon. Uh, but as soon as that happens, now you're going to be looking at a team who's going to be a formidable beast in the East like they were last year when they won the NBA championship. Obviously, they are the defending champions. So 4-4 four and four for a defending champ, regardless of your situation, is still not great. Uh, if I'm going to get on the Lakers about being 5-4 and four with, with injuries, uh, and they weren't even... I mean, they were a first-round exit last year, if you want to think of it that way. So I, I can't excuse the defending champs being 4-4 four and four, no matter what the situation is. All right, what about some overachieving teams? I'm going to go with the Grizzlies and the Raptors. Uh, I don't want to put the I, I put neither of these teams in the worst teams with the winning record just because I could. I only wanted to mention them once. I uh, didn't want to get too down on them. Like, uh, by the way, you shouldn't be this good. Um, but the Raptors are definitely overachieving. I actually don't think that. I think they are more talented than the Wizards or the Cavs. I think I would have put them above those teams to begin the year. But this is still too much for this team. Six and three is not a level that they're probably going to hold for the whole year. Uh, I just don't think they're good enough uh, good enough to just take on the Giants of the East. There aren't that many, but the ones that are good, the Bucks, the Heat, uh, the Nets, those are teams that I don't think they're capable of taking down. Even the Knicks or the Bulls, I don't think those are teams that they're as good as maybe even the, the Hornets. Um, but on the other side, you have the Grizzlies kind of that occupying that same role in the West, although the Grizzlies made the playoffs through the play-in last year uh, while the Raptors picked super, super high in the draft. And don't get me wrong, I think actually part of that is that the Raptors really had a roster that just completely underachieved last year, uh, and the only reason why this team isn't looking amazing into this year is that they lost Kyle Lowry, but beyond that, uh, it's pretty much the same team. And then adding on Scotty Barnes, a top four pick, that is still a pretty good roster. I'm not saying that Scotty Barnes is equivalent in talent to Kyle Lowry, but they're, they're, the substitution there is not that large of a drop-off that you give that team some extra time to gel. You add Gary Trent in the mix, too. They might have overall stayed pretty much the same team as they were last year. It's just about a different vibe this year, a different culture, trying to be get back to their winning ways, and maybe Nick Nurse kind of needs the, 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 the less of a talent, the non-championship winning team to kind of meld them into mold them into a better team as the season goes on because that is his background is talent development uh, and I think he's done a great job of that so far with Scotty Barnes but we'll see how the Raptors carry on for the rest of the season I definitely think they're overachievers for now uh, and the Grizzlies I think could actually keep up a level where if you took out their record for the whole season I, I wouldn't say they'd be able to go 50 and 30 which would be what this would indicate 51 and 31 something like that I don't think they're a 50 win team but I could see them getting 46, 47 wins. I could see them avoiding the play-in game, frankly. I could see them getting sneaking up into the sixth seed and just barely passing teams like uh, maybe the Suns if they have a little bit of a slump this year, uh, maybe the Clippers who are off to a bad start this year. I, I could see that happening, or the Mavericks, teams like that. Uh, I could definitely see that happening, so I won't say they're really, really overachieving right now, but 5-3, and three, not necessarily... Uh, indicative of the Grizzlies, and you know, they'll play a harder schedule as the year goes on, but John Morant has been insane this year already, so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they are able to keep this up. All right, who do you have as your player of the week? Well, I talked about Paul George a little bit earlier. He and DeMar DeRozan averaged the exact same amount of points this week, but just due to the team success of the Bulls this week, I'm going to go with DeMar DeRozan uh, with 35.3 points per game on 64% shooting, uh, seven and a half rebounds per game and two and two assists. Uh, he has worse assist numbers than Paul George and worse re- rebound numbers, but barely uh, for the rebounds category. And same amount of points, but again, 
DeRozan has been ridiculously efficient, and he's done it on a winning team. If you want to vote it for MVP by the end of the season, you're not going to vote for the best player on the worst team. You're likely going to vote for the best player on the best team. He'll get a lot of votes. And beyond that, maybe fifth, sixth best kind of a record. I mean, look at Denver last year. Uh, that's how Nikola Jokic won it, because he was the best player. He was arguably the best player in the league. I mean, I think that's why he got the MVP. But his team was also in the three seed, and he had led them to a great regular season. Uh, they were dealing with injuries and everything. Uh, so DeMar DeRozan on this new-look Bulls roster, I'm going to give him some credit for this week. I don't necessarily think he'll be an MVP candidate come the end of the season, but I wouldn't be so surprised. Uh, but I will say, I, I, I'm admitting that Paul George is a snub for this, but I only have two play. I only have one player. I can't give it to two. Uh, and I want to credit the Bulls for their winning because I didn't talk about them anywhere else because I don't think they're overachieving, frankly. I think their roster is that good to be as good as they are. Uh, and Paul George will probably be more likely to be in the MVP conversation for the whole year, as opposed to DeMar DeRozan, especially because DeMar has a lot of talent around him in Chicago. Uh, but uh, th- this, for now, I'm going to go with DeMar DeRozan for this week. All right, well, I think Paul George, like you mentioned, like you insinuated, might have a few other opportunities to get this award later in the week. Just um, like Steph Curry. Exactly. Well, that wraps up our look back at the NBA for the week, and that ends this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please be sure to join us for our next podcast, which will be on Monday, November 8th, where we will see the accuracy of Patrick's weekend predictions and discuss the weekend's college football and NFL action. In the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including those weekend predictions that were posted yesterday, the 10th installment of our College Football Top 25 poll, which will be posted on Tuesday, and with the onset of this year's college basketball season coming along, we will have Patrick's first NCAA basket tournament bracket posted on Saturday on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number 4, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.